Welcome back to the podcast. We are starting a new series on our Friday show today. So we are going to be looking at some of the basics of Christian living, some of the big questions that new Christians have, or even just young adults have. I know I looked at this series with Michael and I was like, yeah, I wish somebody would have told me and walked me through some of the stuff when I was coming into my own independence. So we're still debating on what to call this. So you might hear Michael call it something a little different, but we are still working on the title. But we thought we'd give you uh, this first lesson already so you guys can keep digging into God's word and keep uh, striving to walk closer to him. So before we jump into it, I want to let you guys know about our couple of trips that are going on here, uh, Evidence for Faith. So beyond the podcast, we do some adventure programming. The two trips that are coming up in January is our Israel trip and in April is our marine biology program. So two, those are two programs that are specialized, one in archaeology, the other one's going to be in marine biology uh, in the Florida Keys. And these are unique opportunities to dig deeper in your faith, dig deeper into maybe an area that you're not familiar with, whether it's archaeology or marine science, and also be around people um, who are Christians and who are experienced doing Christian living and help you maybe answer some of those questions that we're going to be addressing in this series. So if you want to check those out, go to evidenceforfaith.org, and the links will also be in the description. So with that, I'm going to let Michael take it away with our first session in Basics of Christian Living. What is the Bible? Hi, and welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane, and boy, am I excited that you are joining me today in this podcast, because we are starting a whole new podcast series, and this one is called Bible and Life. That's what I'm entitling this, and what it is is taking the Bible and applying it to our lives. Now, (laughs) there's a lot of people, uh, non-Christians, of course, they don't take the Bible and apply it to their life, and there's even some Christians that really don't do this. And so we're going to get into looking at different aspects of just daily living and how do we take the Bible with us. What's God's plan? We're going to use God's Word, His guidelines here, on how we should be living our lives. What's our purpose in life? How do we do this? How, How are we supposed to act? What are we supposed to do? What about certain things? that are happening in the world around us. How are we supposed to respond to these? Well, that's what this series is all about. There'll be numerous lessons following these in the the podcast format as we do this, and I I hope you will join us on each one of these lessons because uh, I just pray that the Holy Spirit just really impacts you and teaches you things, and it's the Holy Spirit that does the teaching. So I pray that the Holy Spirit will just come upon you as you listen to these things and teach you different aspects. Now, if you want to have your Bibles Uh, available and open. I know many of you sit and do this at home as a Bible study, and some groups do this also. Others, they play these podcasts at work when they're in little um, machines and stuff, and that's fine, whichever. Some just listen to it on the car on the way to to work or whatever. However you're doing it, I'm so glad you're joining us. I just want to say that. So as we get into this series, the first thing I want to talk about is if we're going to compare the and study the Bible and see how we're supposed to live our lives, we better know and have a good understanding of what the Bible is. I think that's imperative. So the first lesson in this series that we're going to be doing is, what is the Bible? 
Now, that's not an odd question, even for Christians to ask. As I travel around speaking, I have been asked this many times by not just little children, um, as I'm speaking to some, you know, children's event, but high school kids, college students, even adults have asked me this question. I don't understand exactly what is the Bible. So let's get into this. And I'll, I'll tell you, a funny story that really took place. Back when I was a freshman in college um, at Olivet Nazarene University, I had a class, all incoming freshmen had to take the same class. It was a class called, um, well, it was a Bible survey. I can't remember exactly what they called it, but one semester was the Old Covenant, Old Testament, then the second was the New Covenant. But I remember sitting there on the very first day in the Old Covenant, it was first semester, when the, the first day of the class, and the professor, oh, I, I just love this guy. Um, I believe he's with the Lord now. Um, his name was uh, Dr. Woodruff, phenomenal Bible teacher close friend. I mean, he just, he was a great, great teacher. And um, as he is standing there, there's like 68 or 70 of us in the class. And he tells us, okay, this is uh, opening up to the Bible survey. So would you all take out your notebooks? And I'm going to teach you some um, some things here. So let's start the class. And he started the class. And this is, <laughs> this is actually how he started the class. And he said, <clears throat> the Bible is divided into two sections. There's the Old Testament and the New then he paused. He just paused for effect. And it was just comical. I mean, the majority of us in that room of the 60 to 70 students sitting in there, most of us have, have read most of the Bible, if not all of the Bible. But what astonished me as I'm sitting, I was sitting over, I still remember, I was sitting by the window um, to the right of the uh, professor, um, Dr. Woodruff. I was over on his right about halfway down the aisle in my chair, and I had my notebook open and my Bible open, and I just, when he made that statement that the Bible is divided into two sections, there's the Old and the New Testament, and then he paused, and I just could not believe how many people actually wrote that down. Like, I'm like, really? You didn't know that? And I found it comical. And I remember looking, as everybody's got their heads down and they're writing this down, I look at Dr. Woodruff and he's scanning the room too. And then I gets a smile on his face. <laughs> after class, I asked him, because then he went on, after pausing, he went on and, and uh, taught some more. But um, I remember going, uh, stopping up at his desk afterwards and I said, um, excuse me, but was that meant to be a joke, your opening remark, that the uh, Bible's divided into the Old and the New Testament? And he says, yes, actually, that was supposed to be a joke. When I teach this course, that's usually how I start it with this joke. But he says, um, in this class, it was really interesting because everybody wrote it down. He says, normally people don't write that down. They already know that. <laughs> so he was chuckling. He was telling me that. But it, I don't know. That, that's something that happened back in um, 1975, and it has stuck with me. Yes, I'm old. Um, it has stuck with me all these years about that comical thing of this this great um, – scholar, Bible scholar, and uh, great Christian man. Um, I just really, really enjoyed even just going into his office, making appointments at times, and just walking in and sitting and talking with him on theological issues. He, his door was never, never closed to anybody who wanted to just sit and talk about God, and he was a remarkable person. Dr. Woodruff, yes, um, he was a, uh, in the biblical department at Olivet back then. But as we get into this, I have to tell that little story. As we get into this, what is the Bible? Well, the Bible is the most unique book 
in human history. I mean, there's no comparison. Yes, there's other religious writings, but there are no comparisons to this. It is 66 books. I hope you're not writing all of this down, but if you don't know it, you write it down, yeah. Uh, I'm not making fun of anybody who doesn't know these things. That's not what my intent is here. The Bible contains 66 books, which I often call the 66 love letters, if you've listened to many of my podcasts. Uh, or video lessons, or have listened to me speak in person. Um, 66 love letters, but these books are compiled into one massive volume. And like I say, it's divided into two sections, the Old Testament, or what I like to call the Old Covenant, and the New Testament, or the New Covenant. I don't like using the word as uh, testament, because it's an old term. Hardly anybody ever uses that anymore. Um, the meaning of the word testament has sort of disappeared. It, it was a term that, that meant a contract or an agreement. Covenant makes a little bit more sense. It's Even though that's not a term used very often today, you get the idea that it, there's an agreement here. There's a contract being formed. So we have the old contract and the new contract. Um, and we'll get into that in a, in a future lesson, more about that kind of thing. But anyway, going back to the Bible itself, compared to all other human works of literature, the Bible stands out as being the most different and the most accurate, yes, the most accurate. Archaeologists commonly use the Bible. Even non-believers use the Bible as they sort through stuff in biblical areas as they do digs and stuff because there is so much information in the Bible that is so useful and so accurate. Um, Dr. Mazar, who just recently died, was excavating around David's palace and stuff and excavating around the southern part of the Temple Mount, making all different types of discoveries. And she often would find something, and she would go to the Bible and open it up and and study to see what she's actually looking at. And uh, I'm really—the archaeological world was saddened last year with her sudden and unexpected death. But um, this is an amazing book. It is used by many, many people. With almost 25,000, yes, 25,000 ancient copies and manuscripts of the New Testament alone, it leads the literary world of ancient books. We have more ancient copies of the Bible than any other source. Do you know the next most numerous book we have of a a book from antiquity is Homer's Iliad? Homer's Iliad, yes. Um, and today, as I said, there's over 20, almost 25,000 ancient copies, um, old copies uh, from antiquity of the New Testament. Homer's Iliad, there's 643, and that is considered the second most accurate book by uh, scholars and stuff, not just Christian scholars, but secular scholars as well. Um, 643 ancient manuscripts of the Iliad. Now, follow me here, because this is really important. The earliest copy that we have today of the Iliad was written during the Middle Ages, around the year 1100 A.D. Now, when did Homer live, who who wrote this book? Homer lived over 1,300 years before. He lived around 383 to 322 B.C. Now, just look at the time frame here. That's 1,300 years. That's quite a span of time for books to be copied and copied and copied, etc. And that gives an ample amount of time for errors to be made in copying. Whereas the Bible was completed, the New Testament was finished, uh, the book of Revelation, somewhere right around 100 A.D. Okay, The, the earliest copies that we have of the New Testament date back to the same time period, around the 100 to 120 A.D. Thus, you understand this now, this is so important, 
there's a very small window for change and incorrect copying because there's no span of time like that. Not like what you see 1,300 years with the Iliad. There's very little span of time at all. What's more, if you compare all of the copies of the Iliad that, that exists, the 643, and you compare them one to another, you're going to notice, and if you take notes on this, statisticians have actually done this, um, and they teach this in some secular universities even, that there's about a 5% um, chance of variance, 5% variance between all these different copies. Now, 5%, you're probably saying, well, that's pretty low. That's pretty good. Yes, I'll agree. That is pretty accurate. Um, if you didn't follow what I'm talking about, that means about 5% of the Iliad, when you read the Iliad, about 5% is questionable as to its origin. In other words, as you read this, about you have to just, like, about 5% of it was actually possibly penned by Homer. Now, same type of statisticians have done work on the Bible with all the ancient copies and stuff like this that we have. And the variance in the Bible is less than 0.5%, or one-half of 1%. That is a remarkable, remarkable piece of evidence for accuracy. And even so, now some critics have told me when I've presented this information, they say, hey, hey, even a half of 1%, that's still some variance. Well, that is true. That is true. But when you look at what the variances are, nothing has to do with doctrine. Nothing deals with doctrine. Almost all, not quite all, but almost all of that one half of 1% is in the spelling of names and locations or putting an extra zero in a number or something. It's things like that. It's not in doctrine. Thus, the doctrine that the Bible teaches is pretty accurate from ancient, uh, from antiquity. So the Bible we have today is extremely accurate as to what was given. That's what this is talking about. Now, you might ask, well, Michael, is there any evidence to support this lack of variance in the Bible? Well, yes, there is. There is. Um, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls back in the 1940s helped skeptics who before this really saw the Old Testament in particular, because the, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls are the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Um, that's what's contained in there. And they would, before the discovery, before the 1940s, many skeptics of the Bible would say, well, you can't trust the Bible whatsoever. There's it's no way we can tell if it's accurate, it's been copied, et cetera, et cetera. It's very old. Well, when they discovered these, um, and these Dead Sea Scrolls were written somewhere about 300 uh, B.C. to maybe 100 A.D. in that time, uh, time frame there, these things have helped skeptics see how untarnished the doctrine in the Bible actually is. The scrolls that they found contain all of the Old Testament books with the exception of one, the book of Esther. And in other cases, there are numerous copies of the same book. For instance, I know of um, right now there's five copies of the book of Isaiah. Um, there's numerous copies of the Torah. So there, there's there's number and number of copies. There's over a thousand um books and fragments of, of books that they have found in these caves. And they keep finding more as they keep exploring these thousands of caves in the Dead Sea area. Um, but what we see is this book is basically the same as what is now being discovered in antiquity. So no wonder most archaeologists call the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls as the greatest archaeological discovery of modern times. The Bible also 
despite being written over a span of 2,000 years by 40, yes, 40 different authors from located on three different continents who wrote in different languages, the Bible shows remarkable unity. The individual books do not contradict each other, but complement each other. You're not going to find this in any other ancient religious writings or any other type of writings. This is very unique. Now, some might immediately be thinking, well, wait a minute, the Gospels have all sorts of contradictions in them. Well, actually not, as we're going to take a look at when you see how these books and what their purpose was in being written. You're going to see they're not biographies, for one. They're portraits dealing with who the Messiah is, the character of the Messiah. And we'll get into that in a, a lesson in the future. But um, this our Bible is very, very unique. It's full of history. It Much of it is written in poetry, and there's many poems that are found in it. But it contains the principles for how all people, there remains all sorts of information in there on how to live our lives. But you know something that's really unique? There is a single thread that runs through it from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Like if you take a sweater, if you've ever watched someone sit in and knit or crochet a sweater or something like this, you notice that they're using one strand and they just keep looping it over until they make a, uh, a beautiful, I don't have the skill to do this kind of thing, um, but they make a beautiful sweater, um, a blanket or something like this. But you notice it's got a common thread that runs through the whole thing. Well, the Bible's like that. There's a common thread that runs through all of it. And that's what I want to focus on here, because this will explain what the Bible is when we look at what this thread is. So what's the thread of the Bible? Well, we're going to look at the Bible, because you can divide the Bible, actually, into 11 sections. And we're going to look at each one of these and see what they are, as we're trying to examine what is the Bible. So the first part is this. Number one, the Bible begins with time. The Bible begins with time. In the book of Genesis, we read right at the start, in the beginning, God. Just stop right there. We have it right there. We see that there already was God. God has already been existing. He didn't just all of a sudden just pop up out of nowhere in a spontaneous uh, generation. He always existed, and he was and is eternal. He has existed from long past, before there was time, and will continue into eternity. Our finite minds can't even comprehend this. Don't ask how anybody how to, to answer this, because no one can. We are finite beings. We see a beginning and an end. God is not like that. He goes beyond that. And so he says, when he starts beginning, or starts creating, he says, in the beginning. He's talking about the beginning of the created world and everything like this. And thus he says, in the beginning. Not only that, he starts creating because he is almighty. The name here for God is Elohim, and he is the almighty God. For the next words we read, it says, he created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say he reformed them or he made them out of dust that was laying in the universe. No, he started it out of nothing, and he created it. He can do that. He's God. We can't. It goes against our laws of science. Do you understand to create this time, to create the beginning out of nothing, that goes against the laws of science? Did you ever realize that God is the creator of the laws of science? And since he is the creator of the laws of science, he is not bound 
by the laws of science. Right there is a concept a lot of people struggle with because they try to make God bound by the laws of science. Like he's located in a little box of science. God is somewhere inside the box. No, God is not inside, just inside the box. He is outside the box also. Can't contain him. He created everything. He created the laws of science and put them into effect. And God tells us that there was a beginning. And he established something that hadn't existed existed before. Time. Time is a constant now, but it used to not be. Because before he began creating, there was no time. It was eternity. As we continue in in our lives until the end of the last days of the last days, we go back into eternity. There is no time. And that's why, like uh, John Newton, the famous uh, pastor and uh, hymn writer, when he writes um, one of the verses for Amazing Grace, that classic hymn, um, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the suns, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. Because there is no time. Time goes on and on. There is no, like, counting the years anymore. It's eternity. So, There is something else that God created. A lot of people don't realize he created time. In the creation account, God is telling us that he created not just the physical universe. He created time as well. He also did something else dealing with time that we don't often think about. He established a time period we commonly call a week. It's composed of seven days. Have you ever wondered why a week is seven days, not four, not ten? Not 365. A week exists because God established it at the beginning. Thus, ancient cultures, different places, they have weeks. So he is the one who created that. Then at the end of the creation account, when he's done creating, God makes a paradise and creates his jewel, the apple of his eye, man. Now, I want you to notice something in this creation account. Every time God finished working during the days of creation, and I do believe that these were six 24-hour days. I used to not believe that. I used to believe that they were millions of years and epochs and eras. But as science, um, working in the field of science, when I was working in research, um, I started having serious problems about this. And I no longer adhere to that that idea. I do believe that God created in six 24-hour days. Now, really, is that impossible for God? No. If people who insist that, well, God had to use millions of years, why are you putting God in the time box? He's outside the time box. He created time. Time isn't more powerful than God. But during these days of creation, he always says something at the end of the day. And it's the same thing. Each day of creating, if you look in your Bibles in Genesis chapter 1, you're going to see, and God saw that it was good. He makes that proclamation of perfection at the end of each one of the days he creates. Um, days one, two, three, four, five, six, he, he says these things. But actually, well, when you get to day six, he, he changes that a little bit. Notice what God says after he makes man. It's sort of humorous, actually. God is, he created humor also. God can crack a joke in a way. <laughs> in Genesis chapter two, verse 18, we read this. This is after God has now created man. I mean, think about this. He's created on day one. Oh, it's good. It's perfect. Day two. Ooh, it's good. It's perfect. Day three. It's good. It's perfect. Day four. It's good. It's perfect. Day five. It's good. It's perfect. Then he gets down. He makes man. What's he say? Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good. 
It's not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. God said something was not good about his creation, but he didn't leave it there. He fixes the problem immediately. Now, there's a purpose for him doing this. He's not doing it like, oh, boy, did I mess up? No, that's not what's going on. He's setting up an institution. God created woman for man, and he put them into this paradise, this perfect world, this perfect area where there would be everlasting life. There would be perfection, no predator-prey relationships. Um, It is absolute perfection, no evil, no harm, no illness, no disease, all of this. And he created woman and man and put them into this paradise. And in doing so, here's the institution God set up. He established marriage. Marriage is not a man-made institution. Marriage is something that God created based upon his own character, um, and he made marriage between a man and a woman. Now, you can... um, You can say whatever you want today, what marriage is, and people frequently do change definitions on words because we don't like that definition anymore, so we'll change the definition. Well, God is perfection. He is absolute perfection. He is holy. He doesn't make mistakes. And he is forming the institution of marriage between a man and a woman. Um, They're made perfectly to go together, and they become one. And it's based upon his own character. Man and woman, he calls her one. God is three in one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Man makes a family. It's one family, but it's made of three parts. There's the husband, the wife, and the children. Yet it's still called one family. So we see this type of thing. God does a lot of things based upon his character. And um, he sets things up like this. And even the church, um, churches are based upon his character. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and of course you have then the pastor or the the shepherding pastor, the one who's in charge, and then you have the, the flock underneath it. So there's threes. God uses threes frequently, and he set up what marriage was. So man can redefine marriage all he wants, but the way God instituted, the way that God set it up and what it represents, it's man and a woman. I'm sorry if you disagree with that. Um, don't have to write me notes and stuff like this saying I'm wrong. The problem is you don't have a conversation with me on this. Your conversation is going to have to be with God because this is what he did. This is what he said. So, I mean, if God says it, he's perfect, um, I'm not going to change it. Um, I'm just repeating what he said. So if you've got a problem with that, your problem's with God, not with me. That's what he said. But today, no, we can. We're changing all sorts of things about what marriage is and and everything. I've even read about a person not too long ago who married their horse, and another person who married their cat. This is not God's design. No, they're not meant to go together. No. Mm-mm. So anyway, let's move on. Um, so now, man and woman are living in where? They're living in perfection in paradise. There is no sin. There is no sorrow. There's no pain. There's no suffering. That's how it was all designed. Living in paradise with God was our purpose in life. Do you know why you exist? You exist. Here you go, folks. Here's, here is the purpose of life. You exist to be in a close association with God, to praise and worship him, and also um, you are created to be in fellowship with him. It even tells us in Scripture God walked through the forest and man walked with him. We are created to be in a close relationship, closer than what God had with the angels. He gave us things. He treated us different than them. 
And that's what Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 tells us. So from the beginning of time, man and woman were to live together as one in marriage, in close association with a holy, perfect God. So it's not what kind of car you drive, it's not what kind of job you have, it's not what your career, it's not what kind of house you live in or who you marry. Your purpose in life is to glorify and worship God and be in a close relationship with him. The problem is, we have a problem in doing that because we are no longer holy as mankind was made. And that gets to the second part of the Bible. We get where sin enters creation. Now, somewhere in this beginning, God created angels. We're not told exactly when, but God created angels at this beginning period of time also. But before Genesis 3 takes place, the angels are already there. Some angels, before Genesis 3, rebel against God and follow a powerful, the most powerful angel God created. His name was Lucifer, who later would be called Satan. We commonly call him the devil. He got prideful, and though he was the most superior angel, he wanted the angels not just to worship God, he wanted them to worship him. And so he rebels against God. He hates God. He hates God, but he is totally powerless to do anything against God because he's a created entity. He's much more powerful than man is, but he is not more powerful than God, and he cannot do any damage to God. So what happens? Well, uh, about a third of the angels agree with Satan, and they rebel with him, and then Satan, since he can't hurt God, he enters God's paradise and is determined to make man, God's perfection, the apple of his eye, the crown jewel that God created, he's determined to take the the thing that God loves the most of his creation and make them rebel against God too. And you know something? He succeeds. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the perfect world God created become corrupt and rebellious towards God. And God had warned his creation, that we were supposed to follow him, we're supposed to obey him, and not to do so, to rebel against him, the, re- the penalty would be death. God told us flat out, you live with me, you got to be holy and perfect. If you're not holy and perfect, um, you can't be with me and you die. But encouraged by man and woman in the garden, encouraged by the one who had already fallen, this Lucifer, man and woman chose poorly. They chose death over life with God. Thus, evil was born. That's how evil, pain, lust, covetousness, murder, death, that's how all this entered the world. We chose poorly. But you understand something else that happened here? The covenant, the agreement God had arranged with man and this woman has now been broken. They're no longer pure and holy like he was. Man chose death. And with that choice, he brought down upon himself and his descendants what God had warmed him about. Shame, guilt, misery, death, and more. Now, this sounds like this should be the end of the story, and God should have just wiped it all out. But he didn't do that. God could have just wiped everything out and started all over again, just like teacher erasing a blackboard or something. But no, he doesn't do that. Instead, God made a decision that is still puzzling to theologians to this day and to everybody today who thinks about this. Puzzling. And even the angels are puzzled by this. God decided out of love that he would restore man for himself. So he makes a promise. Right when the sin happened, he makes a promise to man. Right then and there. It's recorded in Genesis 3, 
verse 15. Reading out of the English Standard Version, we're reading, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is a declaration. It's a messianic prophecy about how God is going to fix it. God's making a declaration. He would bring salvation to man and to women through a woman's offspring, that a he, a son, would be born. And he would supply the sacrificial death for everyone. The sacrificial death would be through this child born of a woman. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. Folks, this is, this is the whole premise of the Bible right here. This is what the Bible's all about. The rest of the book of Genesis, and all the way through as you keep going to Malachi, from the Gospels all the way to the book of Revelation, we see how God's fulfilling this promise that he makes in Genesis 3.15, how he's going to restore through the offspring of a, a, a son born of a woman, how he will fix the problem. That's what this is all about. Now, Let's look at how the Bible is set up in showing this, because we're going to see a lot of promises that God makes to redeem mankind. So as Genesis progresses, you keep reading Genesis, uh, a lot of interesting stories there. We see how morally ill man becomes. I mean, it gets really bad. It even gets to the point that God really can't find anybody walking close with him anymore, um, very few, and so God decides he's going to wipe out the world and begin again with just one family. Instead of wiping everybody out, he's not going to break his promise. He made a promise in Genesis 3.15. Thus, he's going to wipe out everybody and, and start over with what, just one family who are saved by an ark and a promise from God. Um, then God will renew this covenant by telling this man, his name is Noah, that his son Shem will be the family that this Redeemer mentioned in Genesis 3.15, this Redeemer will come from. We read this in Genesis 9.26 and 27. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servants. So the chosen tribe, the chosen descendant, if you will, of Noah, where God's promise from Genesis 3 is going to keep coming, is going to be through the line of Shem. Um, and then later in that same book, Genesis, God renews this covenant again, giving another clue of how you will recognize the Messiah, who this Messiah would be. And God renews a new covenant with Abraham. He was called Abram at the time. Um, and do you know something? Abraham is a descendant of who? Shem. And he makes a promise to this Abraham that all the world will be blessed by him. That's in Genesis 12:3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's because the anointed one is going to come through this lineage that he's building. And then it goes on and it talks about how Jacob has a son named Judah. Jacob being a descendant of Abraham, Judah being a descendant of uh, a son of Jacob, and also a descendant of Abraham. And it continues in Genesis 49.10. We're getting to the end of the book of Genesis now. It reads, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. To him shall be the obedience of the people. This is a reference, again, talking about the Messiah coming. And by the way, if you're interested in this, we have a series on our website called, um, it's a podcast series called The Road to Emmaus. It is focusing on like about 80 or so of these messianic prophecies, promises that God made about how you would recognize the Messiah. And then we see how Jesus fulfilled them. It's a great series. Uh, take a look at it or, or listen to it, I guess, is more or less because it's a podcast. But that takes us to the end of Genesis. Now we come to the third part of the Bible. Um, we saw that um, there was was, you know, the, the 
um, Bible begins with time. Then number two was sin uh, enters the creation. Now we come to the third part, and it, we're, it's, it's just called the law, the law. We find God's people now enslaved in Egypt, and God miraculously uses Moses to lead them to Mount Sinai. By the way, Moses is a descendant of Abraham, where he gives them the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law. Now here, God takes the nation of Israel, and in symbolism, he marries this nation as opposed to all the other nations of the world. He marries them. He becomes in a close personal association. He becomes their God, and they become like his bride. Um, And God often refers to the Israelites that when they started worshiping idols, he called them adulterers. That's why he does this, because it was a symbolism of marriage. And uh, in this law that he gives them, he tells them and explains to them what holiness is, because God is holy. The law shows us the character of God and how pure and holy he is. It's just not a set of rules. It's showing how perfect and holy God is. And what we can gather by all these, why God gives us this, because we can see from these laws how impure and how unholy we are. He, uh, we are full of impurities. Uh, what am I talking about? How about self-centeredness? How about hatred? How about lust? How about anger? Just pick one. But God did not give his law to man to give him trials and consequences to suffer, which a lot of people think. No. These things were given to us to let us know the real condition we exist in compared to a holy God. Now, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, God outlines sacrifices in this, in this book of Exodus in particular, and he gets into Leviticus, talks more about it and stuff, but he outlines sacrifices and explains how blood is necessary for covering sins. Sin is what is separated from us from God. How to have that covered? How to have that atoned for? Since the first sin, blood had to be spilt. When Adam and Eve sinned, blood was spilt, and God killed an innocent animal. So blood has to be spilt, and only through death could God accept man. Thus, animal sacrifices now become organized and specialized. God also designs a place for worship, where he can be worshipped, where unholy man can worship a holy God. And he has this um, he gives Moses the instructions um, on how to build this thing and gives uh, different roles for people, assigned duties, uh, the office of the high priest, et cetera, et cetera, to oversee the rituals for, for being holy. But he made it clear, very, very clear, that performing works and deeds is not what makes a person holy or acceptable to God now. No. We're born with a sinful nature. You cannot try to live a perfectly holy life. You can't do it. It's impossible. And believe me, people have tried. Even Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote, I tried to do it. I can't. It's impossible. I cannot do this. As Jesus points out to his disciples when they ask, well, who can be saved? Jesus says, it's easier to go through an eye of a needle. It's basically impossible. Only through God. You see, the sacrifices and the holidays that God sets up show promises of his anointed one coming who's going to fix this. He comes later, but each one of the sacrifices, each one of the holidays that you see on the Jewish calendar all point directly to the Messiah, this Meshach, this anointed one. These sacrifices symbolize how the anointed one is going to have to, ready, suffer and die in the place of man to make man acceptable to God because blood is required. 
And as it tells us in the book of Hebrews, the, the blood of animals really does not do it. It's more symbolism. But Jesus is totally human, yet he's totally God. He's perfect. He has no sins to account for himself, yet he is totally man also, so his blood can cover mankind. That's why Christmas is so important. So that takes us to the end of what we call the law. Then you come to the next set of books. We get into Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, 1st Chronicles, etc., etc. These are what we call, and this is book, uh, section number four. This is the history. So the next set of books we call the history because they go into the history of the period of the judges and through the monarchy of king of the kings um, of Israel. During this time, we read how man sought to live or live without God. Some people strived hard to live close to God. Others tried their best to destroy God's promises and stuff. We, what, what's really interesting is you see people's high points and high moments in their lives when they're walking really close with God and we see their failures. Very few religious writings write so bluntly about man's failure to please God. The Bible is, is one of these books that make it very clear. Also, in these histories, we see more promises from God that his anointed one would come through a man named David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, we read, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, David died, but his descendants, well, this anointed one is going to be a descendant of David who lives forever. What we get to is time um, and man cannot alter God's plan. Then the next set, number five, the next set of books you find in the Bible are called the writings. Oh, that's like, you know, uh, Proverbs, um, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, things like this. Um, Song of Solomon. These are books of songs. Yes, songs uh, and poems written to us to show us how to praise God. That's one of their primary things, how to praise and how to worship God. But they also contain scores of prophecies concerning this anointed one who's going to come. For instance, in Psalm chapter 2, we read how the anointed one would be God's son. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, I tell you a decree, the Lord said to me, you're my son, today I have begotten you. So, the son of God, God will have a son, this anointed one, this coming redeemer will be the son of God. That's Psalm 2, verse 7. In Psalm 16, and also in Psalm 22, we read that the anointed one must die a shameful death in substitution for man and to cover his sins. His blood must, the, the anointed one's blood must be used for the forgiveness of sin. We see this in there. How about Psalm 69? We read how the anointed one must suffer even more. We read in Psalm 89 uh, about how God's promise to King David and the anointed one would be one of his descendants. And we just keep going through. There are so many. I mean, I can't even go into these. Go to the study that we've done, um, the road to Emmaus, and you can see these things. It's fascinating. I try to make it very clear um, how these prophecies all were fulfilled. They're promises made by God on how to recognize and who the Messiah would be, what would he be like, and Jesus fulfilled all of these. Then we come to the sixth section of the Bible. That's what we call the prophets. The prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jonah, Obadiah, Amos, Micah, etc., 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 Zephaniah, all these fun ones like this, uh, ending with Malachi. Well, in Isaiah, for instance, we read of more promises from God concerning this coming anointed one. It talks about how he's going to be born of a woman. Remember that from Genesis 3.15? Well, here it's picked up again. He tells us that the woman 
is going to be a virgin. She would have to be a virgin to conceive the Son of God. It can't be a normal human between an ordinary man and a woman. It's got to be done through the Holy Spirit, not man, not not Joseph. And we read this in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And again in Isaiah, we read more about this coming anointed one. Um, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, oh my gosh, this is, a, this is such an important passage telling us about who the Messiah is. Again, it reads, For unto us a child is born. That goes back to Genesis 3.15. A child is born. To us a son, again, that's Genesis 3.15, is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and with him, uh, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, because he lives for eternity, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, do you know there's a, some amazing, I mean, oh my gosh, we go through a couple of days on just this two verses here, but did you catch that this anointed one is said, his, he is, shall be called, mighty God? He is God. Not only that, it reads, everlasting Father. Thus, Jesus is everlasting. He existed, actually read in John, the Gospel of John, and in Colossians, and in Hebrews, the first couple of verses in chapter 1 of Hebrews. Jesus is the Creator God. He has always been there. He created the time. He precedes time. He always has existed. So, if anyone ever says, no, Jesus didn't exist until he was born of Virgin Mary, no. Isaiah makes it very clear, no, he is God. He is eternal God. Well, Isaiah goes on in chapter 29 and 35. We read how the anointed one, this Messiah, will come and with healing. He's going to heal people. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, we even get a time frame. From Daniel chapter 9, we get the time frame of when the anointed one would appear. That's how the wise men knew when to show up. It's because they had many of these old covenant books, and they had the time frame, the cipher that Daniel wrote on when the Messiah would be born, and actually when he would atone for the people's sins, his death on the cross. It's all in the book of Daniel, and these wise men were able to understand that. Daniel was the chief of the Magi, the chief of the wise men, and these wise men no doubt had access to his books and stuff and his studies. In other books of the prophets, we see how the anointed one will live for a time in Egypt. That's Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. How he'll be born of a woman in the city of Bethlehem. Micah chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. My, one of my favorite ones. How he would remove the stain of sin in a single day. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Did you catch that one? That's Jesus on the cross. He removes the sin of mankind in a single day. Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 11, tell us that he would arrive to do his mission on a donkey in Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. And how, even in Malachi chapters 3 and chapter 4, we read how this Messiah, this anointed one when he comes, who's going to fix all this problem, he would have a forerunner who would come before him, John the Baptist. Well, when you get to Malachi, we come to the end of these messianic promises and stuff of how to know, how to expect, and what the Messiah will be like. Thus, we end the fullness of time for that one. We come to the seventh part of the Bible, and now we're in the new covenant.
covenant, uh, the New Testament, and we have the Gospels. Now, very easily and very quickly here, let me explain. The New Testament begins with four portraits, not biographies. Four portraits of who the anointed, anointed one um, is and who's going to be coming. And, well, he did come. And these Gospels, as we call them, Gospels just meaning good news, the good news of his coming is explained. I have a lesson on this later that we'll talk about these four um, these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is not being biographies. They're portraits showing what the Messiah will be like and who he, he will be like, um, actually fulfilling a prophecy in itself. Um, so what we read in these four Gospels is how the Old Covenant books, what we just covered, how it was all fulfilled in Jesus, the Anointed One. And we find him fitting perfectly in all that God has promised. Every one of the promises that God made, he fulfilled them. He was born of a woman, as promised in Genesis 3. He shows us the character of God in person, and he is, in fact, God in the flesh. But you know what Jesus' key message was? And this is so important. Today we focus primarily on Jesus and God as love. We just hold to that so hard. Uh, we, we refuse to let go of that, which is not bad. But Jesus did tell his disciples, his followers, to love everyone. But that wasn't his message to everybody. His message to every single person was to repent and come back to the Lord. To repent. I challenge you, go back, read the four Gospels. Look at how many times Jesus tells the people to repent. He doesn't approve of their sins. He begs them to repent. The woman at the well, um, the sinful lady brought by the Pharisees to Jesus' feet. And he goes on and on. When they, he sends the disciples in the, into the countryside to preach to the nations, the disciples ask, what's the message we're giving? Jesus says, repent. Goes on and on. That is the key message. Yes, we are supposed to love one another. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are to show love, no question about it. But the world has really lost sight of this holy God and our need to repent. So that's what this was all about. Jesus is teaching us to repent and come back to the Lord. But man, as we read in these four Gospels, was so far removed from the character of God, so evil, so messed up, that few people even recognize God in the flesh right before him, even fulfilling all of these Old Testament promises. And though they thought they were doing God a service by killing him on a cross, little did they realize that in his death, the anointed one was taking their sins and the sins of the world upon himself so that we could be forgiven of our rebellion to God. His blood was poured out to cover the sins of man. And he's not done there. Then he rose again from the dead, proving beyond all shadow of a doubt that he is who he says he was and that his promises would be true. He is God in the flesh. And before he leaves man, he informs them that all mankind, that he's going to come again in the last day of the last days. And that's our four Gospels. Then you get to section 8 of the Bible, the eighth part. It's the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts. After the Gospels, we have this book, and it's all about the formation of the church, how Christians organize themselves into what is called, we still call it this today, the church, and what will be eventually the bride of the anointed one. For God, just as God married the Hebrew people at Mount Sinai in Exodus, the anointed one, Jesus, will marry the church in the end days. Then you come to section 9, what we call the Pauline letters, the letters that Paul wrote. 
In these, God gives us these beautiful love letters informing us how to live a life in close fellowship with him. He instructs us in these letters how to have a personal relationship with God, again, similar to what God intended at the beginning, before we messed it up. After the Pauline letters, we come to the 10th part, and that's just going to call it other letters. You know, First and Second uh, Peter, First, Second, Third John, Jude, and also the book of Hebrews. These are more letters to help us see that Jesus is the anointed one and how to live in that personal relationship with God through Jesus. And the book of Hebrews in particular takes the, the old covenant and shows how Jesus fulfills it. Oh my gosh, that's such a, a phenomenal book, the book of Hebrews. Then we come to the 11th, which is the last section. It's called The Last Prophecy. Yes, the book of Revelation. God concludes his word, uh, the Bible, with one last book of prophecy concerning the church in the future. And it concludes with a judgment before the anointed one. And those who accepted his blood offering sacrifice and his grace that's being poured out to us and have, are, have lived, chosen that, and have living, lived in close association with him as their God, we will enjoy paradise, which was if you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, this is what we were intended to be in. And we go back to everlasting, where there is no sin, there is no tears, there is no suffering, there's no pain, there's no lust, there's no covetousness, there's no murder, there's no death. We go back to the paradise. You see, that's what the Bible's about. And that's how it concludes. But it also tells us this, the sad part. Those who reject God's grace. Do not accept the blood offering of the anointed one who suffered and bled and died for them, who decided to live their own independent life in rebellion to God. Then they're going to see Jesus not so much as the loving, merciful God. They're going to see him as the righteous, holy judge that he is. And these people, as sad as it is, will suffer terrible consequence hell, then the lake of fire, falling into the hands of an angry, just God who offered them forgiveness, and they rejected it. So in conclusion, I hope you can now see that the Bible is in total harmony. We have examined this thread that runs right through it. These 66 love letters from God, given through these through the Holy Spirit to these 40 different writers, we can see now how God had a plan. He had a purpose. And it got messed up. But he wanted us to have an abundant, personal, close fellowship with him. And only through the Messiah can we do this, through this anointed one. I have to ask, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you know the anointed one? Are you in a close fellowship with him? Have you repented of your sins? and committed your life to Christ? John 3.16 says that whoever believes in him, the word believes is not the way we look at it in English. You go back to the Greek, which this is written in, it's pishtuo, which means to put your faith and trust in. You commit to. Faith, trust, commit. That's, that's the definition of pishtuo. So in other words, John 3.16 reads, whoever puts their faith, commits, trusts in Jesus as their Savior, he will be saved. Have you done that? If not, what's holding you back? 
You don't go get yourself cleaned up before coming to God. That's like washing your car before you go to the car wash. No. Let God do the work. We can't work our way into heaven. We can only get there by what he does for us. And he offered his son. His plan starts in Genesis 3.15, goes all the way to the end of Revelation. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If not, why don't you ask him right now to forgive you, repent, and commit your life to him. He's right there waiting for it. I hope you do that. If you have any questions about it, or if if you do make that, we'd love to hear from you at Evidence for Faith. You can contact us, evidenceforfaith.org. You can org and let us know. We'd love to hear from you as we go through this series. And I hope this series and this lesson here today makes things clear for you and also um, helps you in your walk with God, fulfilling your purpose in life to praise, worship, and have fellowship with the holy, righteous God. So until we, we meet again as a podcast or in some other lesson, take care and may God bless. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes, and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.